Relating to Self. A podcast that helps you create a better relationship with yourself. Hey, I'm Joachim. Welcome. Do you realize that there is only one relationship that you will always be in? The relationship with yourself. Improving that relationship changes everything. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and I invite real people to have vulnerable conversations about how they relate to themselves and what we can learn from that. Suvarchala, welcome back to the Relating to Self podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. So you were my guests in season two, episode 15. I had to look that up. I will post a link to the episode in the show notes so that people can kind of like uh, know more about you. But now you are here to turn the tables and to ask me questions about how I relate to myself and maybe other things. But first, perhaps a small introduction. Who are you? <laughs> Thank you. Um, so I'll just say briefly that I am a guide. I guide people through inner transformation, uh, next level relationships and eroticism. I help people connect to their own erotic authentic selves because I believe that erotic energy is really the key to so many other things in life. You know, it connects to absolutely every part of one's life. And um, yeah, I just guide people through that. And it's been an incredible journey. And apart from that, I also am a business journalist. Um, and yeah, those are my two worlds. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It sounds like we have a lot in common still. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I'm very curious to hear where you're going with this. Right. I've known you for a while now, and I think that I've seen a few of your phases, if not all of them. And even just, you know, having the conversation with you for your podcast, I think surfaced so many beautiful ideas, you know, through your questions, because your questions were also explorations for yourself, I believe. And so I'd love to start with who you were 10 years ago. Mm. Oh, that's juicy. If you remember. <laughs> that's the thing, right? <laughs> um, I think something like there is a story that comes up. I don't know if mm -hmm. this is accurate and maybe it doesn't matter, but I have a story of who I was 10 years ago, more or less. Right. 10 years ago, I was in this beautiful transition phase between being a musician and that being kind of the place where I had brought myself through my desire and passion, because music was one of my first loves and one of my first true methods of expression. And then 10 years ago, I started to transform myself into, I would call it an entrepreneur of sorts, maybe not mm -hmm. a traditional entrepreneur, but definitely more leaning towards that. And I remember I was in a lot of turmoil internally 10 years ago, because that transformation felt in many ways like a dissolution of 
the ego that I had built up throughout my life. Mm -hmm. And since that was the first time that I really went through an ego dissolution, that was also difficult. And I had a lot of existential questions around that. That's kind of like where I was. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that happens to us, they open new doors, right? And they really are the catalyst for an incredible transformation that leads us to our present self. What were the questions facing you? And what was the identity that needed to be dissolved in order for you to start walking to this present self? Mm. I think the question that was most present to me at that time was something very simple, like, I have achieved the goals that I set out to achieve. Why am I not happy? Mm -hmm. right, that's kind of like, hmm, interesting. Some Something's going on here. A question that came from that, that was equally important, was something like, okay, but then what is it that I desire if it is not this? If this life doesn't make me happy, then what is missing? Mm -hmm. And I believe the answer to that was mostly things like freedom, agency, taking responsibility for myself and my own life. So those are the things that then allowed me to walk the path that I have come now. And what are the questions that drive you today, this present self? Mm. <laughs> I think the biggest question for me right now is something like, how can I serve? Mm, beautiful. Yeah, I'm in a, I'm in a great place. I'm in a really good place mm. that I have built for myself. I'm, I'm proud of myself. I'm, there's such an abundance of joy in my life. And so the question now is very much, how can I give back? How can I give it forward? How can I mm -hmm. be of service to people around me and the world? I think what I found interesting about what you said about your earlier question was about why am I not happy? And I think so much of the things that we experience goes back to our definitions of it. So you would have had a different definition of what happiness was at that time and you'd achieved it, right? And there was still a void. What would you say defines your becoming today? You know, what are the experiences that has defined your present identity? And how do you relate to that? Well, I think the most complete and truthful answer is that all of my experiences have created what I am now, right? But I think there's a few perhaps specific ones that I can name that are, at least in my vision of my own story, crucially important. Mm -hmm. I think the earliest is something like childhood attachment trauma, mm -hmm. growing up in an environment that maybe didn't give me some of the core needs that I had, which made me very self-reliant mm -hmm. and gave me an ability to really live in my imagination, so to speak, mm -hmm. because that was the one place that I felt safe. A second thing that I would name as important is my path and career as a musician, both as a composer and a performing musician, singer more specifically, singing specifically also music that was meant to be sung by people who are equals, mm -hmm. Renaissance polyphony, 
and being on stages all over the world and having these amazing experiences of transcendental unity or something like that with with a bunch of people even if at the time i wasn't very aware of that or those people that i was doing that with also were not into that at all Mm. i think it gave me something crucial today which is something like the ability to truly listen yeah Uh, a, a great musician has to perpetually listen to what's going on around them. Mm-hmm. So that was defining. And then a third thing that I would name is probably my my early journey into meditation. Mm-hmm. I remember very clearly that at my first meditation retreat, I had something of an epiphany. And mm-hmm. it was very simple. It was the discovery that there was an amazing amount of unprocessed emotion, grief, sadness, anger, all of that stuff inside of me still that I didn't even know was there before. Right? Mm-hmm. And that was like, oh, wow, okay, so I need to change something. Something needs to happen. I think those are three things that definitely have defined me. Mm-hmm. And how did the story that you held all those years ago um, define your relationship to yourself? but also your romantic relationships. <laughs> I feel like... I know this could be an entire podcast, exactly, but yeah. I or think... Or a few, <laughs> few episodes. But um, I think my relationship to myself in my early years was mostly mm. defined by shame. Wow. And guilt. Mm. And it's something like the child's perspective of... I am not getting what I need, but I don't know what that means. I must not be good enough. There must be Mm. something terribly wrong with me in some way. Mm. And that played out over decades, obviously. And the most beautiful way in which that manifested was in my romantic relationships, right? Where in my early life, certainly my first partner, my first girlfriend who became my first partner, was very much a direct translation of my experience of what love meant with my mother, which means that she didn't treat me very well. Let's, Let's keep it at that. And that was very confusing, right? Mm. Because at that point in my life, I guess it was more about like being caught in all these different stories because Mm. that's basically what defines how we see things, the stories of what romantic love is supposed to look like, then the story of what I experienced myself, and then trying to like make sense of the fact that someone treating me badly makes me believe that there is love or something like that. Like, wait, what? So it took me many, many years to heal that and a whole process, including therapy and meditation and so on. And I believe that my savior in all that was that I discovered that it was in my relationship with myself that I could heal those things. Mm-hmm. That there were all those parts in me, all those voices in me, all those, I would call them now something like embodied narratives, things that I believed about myself, things that I had constructed as part of my identity that were hurting me in very mm-hmm. direct ways. And that it was my responsibility to look at those stories, dissolve them, and then talk to my parts 
accept them, mm. make them feel loved, make them feel seen and so on in order for me to rebuild myself and to then be in the world as a manifestation of what's inside of me with love and then also being able to receive love from others instead of what I had misconstrued as being love in my youth. That's beautiful. And for those of us who have done the work, you know, all of this is very familiar language, but there might be some in your audience who are very new to this work, new to this language. And so I wonder if you're comfortable giving an example of what, you know, talking to one of these aspects was like. Mm -hmm. Would you be comfortable going into that? Yeah, of course. Very happy to. One of the parts that I talk to regularly is something like my wounded child, right? This this very young version of myself who has no idea about anything really and who feels very unsafe. And because of feeling unsafe, creates all kinds of tensions around what is supposed to happen and what is not supposed to happen. And so there is a lot of, in that relationship, it's really just about presence, the way I perceive it. Like sitting with my wounded child and allowing him to be there and mm-hmm. showing him that I will not disappear. Yeah. I will not disconnect because of whatever he's going through. So whatever is mm-hmm. real for my wounded child at any moment, whatever fears come up, whatever shame, whatever guilt about what's happening in the world or what's happening to him, just sitting with him and going like, hey, I'm, I'm here. It's okay. And I am committed to keep you mm-hmm. safe and to give you love no matter what. It's kind of like a reparenting from the perspective of a, an abundance of love that is always there regardless mm-hmm. of what happens. And that's usually enough for, for that part. That part kind of like quietens down and feels relaxed. It's literally like I perceive these things very often as like a tension that arises. And then the resolution of the tension is a relaxation, right? And that part, that's usually all he needs. Mm. And now that you have really, I think, matured with this part and this part has matured with you, how do you see that influencing other parts of your life, your career, your relationships, and just, you know, your own ecstasy with the world? Mm. Basically, it's everything, right? Like the... Mm -hmm the way I relate to all my parts and to myself is I believe in some very real ways, the lens through which I see the world, everything that I experience gets filtered through the stories of all those parts and and myself. And that's how I give it meaning. That's how I understand them. And even to the point where it's, it's perception, right? It's like the way I see things is through that whole bunch of parts. The thing is that recently, what I've come to as my construct of what it means to be me Mm. is an even more layered version. Because if you look at IFS or just like, you know, parts theory, you have all these different kinds of parts that are representing different parts of yourself in different 
periods of her life, maybe also some other characters that, that came in there that are important. But I believe now that the layer cake is much deeper than that even. It's like, it goes back to like cellular biology even. It's like, I am a gigantically complex construct of an almost infinite amount of layers with all their own stories and backstories and desires and needs and wants and drives. And so the point where I'm at now is like to be as compassionate as I can be with mm. the me who perceived things, the me who kind of is aware of things in navigating what all those different parts of me need and want and where they want to go. Mm. And a lot of my work now is about surrendering. It's about surrendering to the aliveness. And I think mm. when you mentioned this erotic energy in the beginning, mm -hmm. I think that's exactly what I mean when I say aliveness. It's this, this life force, right? And it manifests in different ways through all those different layers of what and who I am. Mm -hmm. It's about listening. It's about listening to where that flow is going and then surrendering mm -hmm. to the sometimes seemingly nonsensical ways in which that asks things of me or, or invites me to do things, let's say. Um, but yeah, so being compassionate also with the perceiver, the, the awareness in the fact that I can't know, like there are so mm. many things that I just can't know and getting yeah. more and more comfortable with that not knowing. And then the surrender is, yeah, such a beautiful part of the journey that I'm in now. Lovely. And I'm curious. So, you know, we have the saying that when the wounded child is at the wheel, um, it really looks at the world through its eyes, through its stories, including how it sees its parents and the things that have happened uh, to it. Now that you've, you know, got into this point, has there been a shift in how you see your mother, how you have that relationship with her? Mm. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think the shift that has happened most recently in, in my relationship to my parents, but I would say even my lineage, like the, the mm. people who came before me, whose descendant mm -hmm. I am, is is a more, well, also compassionate perspective. It's more and more seeing them as also the result of their circumstances and whatever they had to work through and their traumas and their historic um, experiences also like you know the wars and stuff like that and so there is less and less the need to make sense of mm -hmm. what they have done in the past to me because the perspective of the wounded child is you have done this bad thing to me right that's kind of yeah. like that's where it starts and now it's like seeing the bigger picture and going like oh they behaved in those ways because this thing was happening inside of them and they weren't even aware of it. Mm. And that thing was happening also because of all these things that happened to their forefathers that they had no control over and no awareness around. And so it's yeah. healing all those parts of me that is also healing the intergenerational trauma of my lineage. And yes. saying like, look, I'm, I'm not that victim who will just act out all those different traumas i am the place where this stops yes <sighs> yes and and it's such powerful work and i think it's one of the most urgent um urgent works of our generation 
right, to transform that, to end it with us. And um, I would love to know what kinds of tools or modalities you went through or experienced. Parts work is one of them. Was there anything else that you did? Yeah, so I have to be completely honest. I never did IFS therapy, right? So when, when you mm -hmm. say parts work, I did parts work, but it was yeah. almost like an unconscious version of parts work. Exactly. But I think that's yeah. that's really beautiful about Schwartz, who, who made IFS, where he also writes, this came out of like his experience while doing therapy, right? It's like mm -hmm. a lot of people seem to come up with this image of like, there's this part of me who wants that, there's another part. So yeah. it feels almost natural. So I had that as well. I think other modalities, well, I went through... I would say more like uh, classical cognitive behavioral therapy for a while mm -hmm. to try to make sense of my behavior towards my, my mother, my family, mm -hmm. my peers and so on. Um, I think my most important modality though, is again, something that wasn't given to me, but something that I kind of did on my own, which was, I call it being with what is. Mm. And I have this whole theory around the subconscious basically has the ability to heal itself. Yeah. If we get out of our own way, a lot of healing just happens. That's just how, yes. how bodies are, both in the physical mm -hmm. and in the emotional realm, I believe. And so a lot of my progress I attribute to silence. A lot of my progress I attribute to making space for things to unfold, things to happen without forcing, without... Well, it's like if you if you have a physical wound and you would continuously poke at it with your fingers or, you know, try to push it or something, it won't heal very well. If you leave it alone, it kind of heals. So there's a lot of that unfolding, as I would name it, that has happened because yeah. of my commitment to solitude and silence. And I was lucky in that sense because solitude and silence are things I love. Yeah. So, so that came very easily for me. For some other people, that's really hard to commit to solitude and Absolutely. silence. No, and, you know, I, I completely, you know, agree with you here because I'm the same. And I think that silence and solitude are themselves, we, we talk of them in this very nebulous way, but actually they are entities by themselves that have so much to give us. They are in themselves teachers. And I think a lot of people's issues with staying with them comes from this fear because it brings up all of this that has been unconscious and then they don't know what to do with it. But if you befriend it, and I think you face it, then it transforms into something incredibly beautiful. Of course, there is pain as well, but it does transform. And I really would love to understand how you see love now, mm. you know, how do you look at romantic relationships? How has it changed for you? Mm. I will answer that question, but there's something else that you just said that I kind of want to point to. Yeah. You said, yeah, pain will come up. And I'm like, yes, pain will come up in such and silence, but only because it's already there. Yes. And I think that's yes. a mistake that people make. They think that silence and solitude create pain in some way. Yeah, no. exactly. When in silence and solitude, finally you're able to perceive the pain that was already there. And then by going through it, it actually resolves. So it, it doesn't yes. need to be there anymore. And I think that's, yeah, exactly. I just wanted to add that. And, no, but I think, you know, adding to that, 
it's that when you're not in silence and solitude, when you're so busy doing, and I think this this includes the doing the workshop after workshop, doing you know you know learning tool after tool, in the busyness of it, you lose the opportunity to just be with it. And I think when you're not just being with it, the pain comes up, but it comes up in highly destructive ways, sabotaging relationships, sabotaging work, and. So the pain is always there. We just don't call that pain. Yeah, and as long as it's there, it will add more pain, right? Yes, exactly. Not just to you, but to everyone around you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which brings us to love and then romantic relationships, which I believe are something very different from love, by the way. Two completely different concepts. Um, Love, I find complicated to speak about because... Mm -hmm. The term itself is so overused and we use it for so many different kinds of things. And it refers to so many different things in our human experience. I think when I say love, well, obviously I use it all the time also for other things. Like I love tea. (laughs) Yeah, great. I love tea. You know what I mean when I say I love tea. That's not love. That's not the concept love, right? So for me now, love has become something like almost like a desire for someone Mm -hmm. else to thrive and to be able Mm -hmm. to fully express themselves. And there is no attachment in that for my part of it. Like I do not need to contribute to someone else's happiness or their full expression of themselves. It's just like I feel, I see you now, I'm like, Suvarchala, oh, I truly hope that, that, you know, you flourish in the world. That yeah. is love. Mm-hmm. It's unconditional. It doesn't depend on what you do or say or give or anything like that. It's just this deep yeah. feeling of wanting to the other to be well. Mm-hmm. Romantic relationships. <laughs> I am I'm in a weird place. Um, let's say that I don't even really understand or know exactly anymore what romantic means. Mm-hmm. For a very long time, I've considered myself to be somewhat of a relationship anarchist, right? So mm-hmm. the idea of relationship anarchy is basically that all humans have relationships and the content of those relationships can be determined by any two humans in their own relationship. And they are free to define what that means for them. Oh, Great. What then is romance? What is a romantic relationship? For me, where I am now, and I have to admit, this changes sometimes month by month, right? So (laughs) if you listen to this in a few months, I may already have changed my mind. But um, I believe romantic relationship, I would maybe even define it more precisely as partnership. Yeah. Something that I see that has to do purely with storytelling and myth-making. Mm-hmm. It's about giving a physical form to a concept of building a life with someone. I do not necessarily know if that is something I desire. Mm. Because I've been diving a lot into the idea of mimetic desire. Like, where do mm-hmm. our desires come from? Most desires seem to originate from 
peer groups from looking at the world and going like, oh, other people value this, so now I desire mm -hmm. it. And I think romantic relationships or partnerships may even be part of that. I think mm -hmm. a lot of people, me included, have desired that in the past because that's just what people desire. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of validation there that comes from social order and all these kind of things. Like when, when you are in a partnership, people see you as different from when you are quote-unquote single. Um, yeah. But so having identified that, I think for now, I identify as self-partnered. And mm -hmm. what I mean by that mm -hmm. is that I feel I have a fulfilling, rich, beautiful, and enough life. <laughs> like there's yeah. an enoughness yeah. with being with myself in the world. That doesn't mean I am alone. Obviously not. Mm -hmm. I have tons of beautiful people around me with whom I have rich and beautiful connections and meaningful relationships. But I do not need the idea or the story that I will go through life together with someone else, building something that nobody else has, just the two of us, yeah. to have that sense yeah. of accomplishment. Mm -hmm. I'll pause there, see if you have any, <laughs> any questions. Yeah, no, I, I think it's very interesting because, you know, you made a point about how so much of how people perceive traditional relationships is bound by convention, is bound by tradition, is bound by social approval. And I think that's very true. And I also believe that there are other versions of it, right, where a relationship that does not necessarily have to last forever. I think that's one myth or not even a myth. It's one idea of a relationship, uh, of a partnership. The reason I don't like the word partnership is because to me, it becomes very clinical, right? It's like two partners work. <laughs> um, and it takes out the eroticism for me. So I mm. tend to use the word lovers a lot. But there's another idea that I subscribe to with relationships, and I'd love to you know, get your take on this, which is every lover that enters our world. And when I say lover, they can be an intimate lover. They can be someone that you, you know, have sex with or don't have sex with. They're a lover because you see yourself flourish with them. You want to share a part of your life with them. Um, and I think this idea of lovers who bring out different parts of you, which you couldn't have been without them in your life, right? Because our lovers are also mirrors. They bring up different aspects of ourselves. And I think that for me personally, relationships are some of my biggest mirrors and teachers. Uh, it's actually, I've called it a spiritual practice in my life. <laughs> so, um, so I wonder whether if you were ever to look at it through that lens, um, what kind of lover do you think you would call in today in order to be able to play out a certain dance with them mm. that could bring out a certain aspect for you? Oh, that's such a beautiful question. Thank you for that. <sighs> and you tune into that a bit. Like, hmm. Please do, as long as you need. Yeah. I think two things come up. The first is around playfulness. Mm. <laughs> playfulness is not my natural state. Like playfulness mm -hmm. is something that I had to learn over the years. And I believe it would be really beautiful for me if I had a lover, as you call it, who would 
perhaps invite me to be more playful. To, to bring out that part of me, right? And some people, when I say invite, it doesn't have to be something that they have to work to do. Some people just invite yes. you by their own being, right? Exactly. So that's one aspect so that's... that I would name. The mm -hmm. other is something like um, the, the deep resonance of being able to be with someone who you believe gets you, mm. who can see you, without maybe even needing many words. Yes. And I'm a bit wary of that one, because I do believe that, <laughs> in a sense, it's one of those constructed desires that maybe relates back to having a traumatic childhood and not being seen, not being heard, yeah. and this idea that someone can see and hear you without knowing much mm. about you. Mm. Dubious. But I have experienced glimpses of it already. I have been mm. in situations where I have felt just by being with someone like, wow, this person can be with me in a different way mm. than other people can be with me. What is going yes. on here? So I would love to also invite that in more. Oh, that is so beautiful. And I, yeah, I really wish that for you as well. I, I also hear what you're saying about how that idea of wanting to be seen is a construct and it can be, but I think it's the intention behind that that informs whether that's a construct or not. You know, because I think that the need to be seen is such an innate, essential part of us that even those of us who haven't come from that particular um, lack or trauma feel very, very strongly. But I think what makes it different from a construct is when it's given to you in a way that you don't want or expect if whether you're able to then receive that, right? And so I think that anything can be many things. Um, and so to me, this idea that, oh, I'd love to be seen is, is so essential. And yet when it comes to you in a way that you don't really understand as being seen, and then we have to learn to see it as being seen, is also part of the magic of a relationship. Beautiful. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I love that so much. That's true. What comes up for me is also that this, one of the experiences, one of the glimpses that I found around this is, is something like, um, it resides mostly in poetry, almost. Mm -hmm. it's, about, it's about using words in a specific way that just resonates with the other, where, you know, someone yes. asks you a question and because of how they phrase the question, you're able to bring out something in just a few words, just a simple statement. And you see that the yeah. other person fully receives that. It's like, oh, yes. Mm. And then the way they respond makes it clear that they not only understand it, but they can relate to it. And yes. oh, that can be yeah. so beautiful. Yes. And, and you know, like poetry, and this is why I'm such a huge fan of love. <laughs> it's because, <laughs> you know, like poetry, I believe... A relationship is written in the sense that it's constructed sentence by sentence. You have to think of the rhythm. You have to you take things out. You put the. It's really a messy process, mm -hmm. and I feel like things are not automatically given. There is this fallacy that when you meet the right person, which I don't even understand what that means, but when you meet the right person, somehow you know, you will be seen and known and it'll it'll just fulfill all these parts of you when actually it takes work. 
it takes time it takes patience it takes so much forgiveness you know and and so i i think this this incredible i love your analogy of you know poetry here because also in using that um i think you bring in an element that is missing in so much of contemporary relating whether it's relating to the self or to you know others because it's become very dogmatic it's become formulaic mm. you know this whole self-care and how to be there for yourself and how to love yourself it, it feels like um i don't know a 10-step process that if you go through it you could get there and i know from our conversation you know in the previous podcast that you have a very different view of what it means to relate to the self. And so I'd love for you to tell me how you see this process, if it is a process for you. Yeah. Um, well, I think it is a process in its nature, right? Something is unfolding, something is happening, so it's a process. I think I love what you said about it becoming formulaic. I think the real process is the opposite of that. It's getting away mm -hmm. from the formulas and just being present with what is and with what is unfolding and what that thing then needs. That's the process. And I think for <laughs> me, the way I experience this right now in, in my relationships in life is that it's again and again, I come back to this, it's all about compassion. It's all mm. about understanding that whatever is unfolding for the other is human and is not necessarily mm. even directed at you or related to you. <laughs> it's just their process. And then to hold space mm. for that process and be supportive instead of responding from a, wait a second, are you accusing me of this or that? So the process is about holding space for myself in the first place, being mm -hmm. truthful, being absolutely brutally truthful to myself about what is happening mm. for me. And then mm -hmm. bringing that to another, of course, with as much kindness and compassion as I can muster. From my belief now that it is never anyone's responsibility except my own. My feelings are mm -hmm. my responsibility. How I act is my responsibility. So there's no blame involved, right? There's no pointing at the other and going like, you make me feel this thing. or mm -hmm. that That's just not how it works. And that whole process, I think I would name as something like relating with awareness and intention. Mm -hmm. And the goal of it is, and this is a word I don't very often use, but I will use it now. The goal is truth. Mm -hmm. The goal is to just find out what is true. What is true for you, mm. what is true for me. And nothing needs to be protected. And this yes, is crucial. Yes. Because I see so many exactly. people relating in ways that they're trying to protect the relationship. They're trying to protect mm -hmm. what they've built or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. As long as you're protecting mm -hmm. something, you are not going to look at things truthfully. I'm much more interested to sit here with anyone and go like, but what is really true for both of us? And mm -hmm. if in that process we discover that the truth is that there is no aliveness in a certain part, or there is a, an opposition that is not resolvable, then that's okay. That, yes. That's beautiful. That's like, yes, we've done the work. And we have clarity, you know. Yes. Uh, that's, and that's such a beautiful process for me now to really surrender to that understanding that you can, you can never know what is going to unfold. Mm -hmm. And that's crucial. 
I, I don't want to protect. I don't want to hold on. I don't want to cling. I don't want to attach to things that are not real, which is mm. almost everything. What I find fascinating about that, though, is in order to be able to do that, which to me, I would call that the holding of a paradox without needing to resolve the tension. Mm -hmm. Right? When you sit with two people's truths and they are not in that moment resolvable, um, in order to be able to sit with it and be comfortable with it and proceed with that, I think it can only come from a place of such a deep awareness of the self and the ability to not need a fixed outcome, which is the opposite of how almost everything works in this world. Mm. Right? Um, and so that point brings me to your focus on compassion, because I think it's related to what I want to explore next, which is compassion to me, and you can tell me if you have a different definition, is really this very boundless, radiating love, I would say, but more than love, it's this desire to hold the other person's truth and where they are at in that moment. And to allow that with, not just allow it in a sense of tolerating it, but allowing it in the sense of really seeing it and loving that, mm -hmm. right? But now we have in our contemporary era, this concept of boundaries, mm -hmm. which is everywhere. And it's so strong and it's so rigid, you know, you have to put your boundaries. And I understand where it's come from. You know, looking at history and where people have come from, I understand why we have. How do these two work together in your mind? Beautiful. So yes, boundaries, extremely important, and it's hard to say that boundaries are overemphasized now, because mm -hmm. I think for many people there is still a lack of boundaries, and that creates a lot mm -hmm. of problems. Right? I believe healthy boundaries are very important. And I agree with you that it shouldn't be the end goal. Like that's only the start. Having healthy boundaries is the start yes. of a relating, not the end. But because indeed in in times before us, when, when I look at my family, my parents and so on, mm -hmm. nobody had any healthy boundaries. So you have constant conflict, you have constant drama triangles. There's there's lots of problems mm -hmm. with that. So learning yeah. to have healthy boundaries with others and with the self, to be honest, mm -hmm. is a crucial part of the process, right? Mm -hmm. I think it is almost impossible to hold compassion well if you are not mm -hmm. boundaried. Mm -hmm. Because that's what I did before I went through all these processes. I didn't have healthy boundaries. So what I did instead was self-sacrifice. So yes. the shape of my compassion was to take away my needs to then be able to hold what you described so beautifully, the other person fully being there. And that's not even compassion. That's just exactly. foolishness. I was just going to say, but is that compassion? No, no, then? it's not. But that was, that was what it was then for me. Yeah. Because I didn't have those boundaries. So I think that the yeah. two concepts go hand in hand necessarily. Mm -hmm. You can't be truly mm -hmm. compassionate unless you already have healthy boundaries. Right. And, and what, does a healthy boundary look like for you? Let's take an example of a friend, 
right? Can, does something come to mind that you can share with us as an example? Yeah, there's plenty of examples. I think I really still like the definition of Mark Manson of boundaries. Mm -hmm. Boundaries are taking responsibility for your own emotions and actions without taking responsibility for the emotions and actions of someone else. I think that's something to work with. Another definition mm. of boundaries that I like is something like it's the smallest distance on which I can both love myself and the other. I think that's mm. also beautiful. As a beautiful. Yeah. But it takes many forms. With friends, the kind of boundaries I'm currently practicing are mostly around the internal tension that I feel when I think someone is expecting something of me. For example, mm. you send me a voice note mm. and I see the voice note. And then I think, ooh, I value Subarchala. I want to make time for this voice note and respond to her in a, in a good way. And mm. I have no capacity for that right now. <sighs> Problem, <laughs> right? That's so the, the unhealthy version of that is that I listen to your message even without having capacity and I end up brabbling something in response that doesn't make any sense, but I need it somehow. I think the cultivation of healthy boundaries with friends there is to tell them, like, look, I love you. I want to be able to be fully present to what you give me. And right now I don't have the capacity to do that. So I will mm. defer until I feel I have the capacity again to be fully present in the way that I like to what you shared with me. Right? Mm. And having that cultivated with my friends means that I don't even need to express that. They know this. Yes. Mm. And they not only know it, but they support it. I love mm. nothing more that with a lot of my friends now, we make that also actually explicit. And that really helps. Like at the end, if I send you a long voice note, I will probably start or end with something like, and you know, there's no pressure to respond to this. Whenever feels right for you, it's welcome. Something like that. Yes. And that, ah, that relieves so much tension from, from this whole process of, yes. of expectation. And I think that's just one aspect, but it's a very mm -hmm. um, important aspect, I think, for many people. <laughs> so it's a very current yeah. aspect, yeah. you know, because this is so much of our relationships are now happening online mediated by the technology that demands or almost creates an urgency around them. But what I found is, and this is such an interesting point, because while a lot of people have tried to create self-love in a way that is uh, a set of practices, what is actually also needed is a culture around it that supports this, right? And that culture means sometimes changing language, and bringing in ideas that haven't existed before. Uh, for example, you know, in India, my home door is always left open mm -hmm. and anyone can walk in and walk out. And I love that. I truly love that. And my parents are built like that. But I have found that I am not made like that anymore where I can always, you know, relate to that in the same way as them. And so what was needed was to say, yeah, let's keep this open. It's beautiful. But please don't expect me to get involved in every interaction. I may not want to. So I think the language, having these conversations, making this normal, you know, I have a lot of friends who will call up and be like, um, oh, I'm so sorry. Or when they leave a voice note, they'll be like, I'm so sorry, this was five minutes long. <laughs> and I think to myself, 
what have we become that we have to apologize exactly. for the fact that we have left a five-minute voice note, right? And so part of me creating a culture is to say, hey, listen, I want you to go as deep and go as long as you want. I may not respond immediately, but I am going to take the time to sit down with a cup of tea and I have a ritual where I can just luxuriously listen to your message. And that immediately changes, you know, how we do this. So what 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 do you think? What other changes or shifts can we make in the culture of our relating mm-hmm. that can help us? I think the number one thing that comes to mind for me is consent culture. Mm. I mean, this is very related to this whole idea of boundaries, right? It's like, what do we actually consent to? And Mm -hmm. consent in all the possible ways, you know, it has to be informed, has to be explicit and so on. I feel like so many of my normal, quote unquote, interactions with people in my past were just Mm non-consensual. I was constantly infringed upon and I was probably doing the same to others all the time, just because that's normalized. That's kind of like what we see around us. So I think bringing in this idea of consent and it's much wider than just when it's about sex, right? Because usually Mm. we hear this word consent when it's about sexuality and especially when it's about transgression of boundaries in a sexual way. But consent applies to literally everything. Mm. There There is a domain in my life of which I am sovereign. That is mm. you know, my, my personal space, my, my mind, my environment, you know, all these things. And I think if we created a culture of explicitly asking mm. if it's okay to be or do or, or whatever that it is, that would represent a huge step forward in in creating mm. more kind and less violent relationships. Right. And I hear you on this completely, and I challenge that a little bit in the sense that, so for me, the way consent culture works very explicitly, and I think, again, I need to preface that by saying, I know where we've come from, and I know how violent the lack of consent has been. And so, so much of, I think, what we see today is in the fact that there's been such a lack of it. And you can't get to the next stage without passing through this point. Um, and then it becomes very implicit. And because I work with eroticism, I think the idea has been that explicit consent doesn't always go with the fluidity of eroticism. Mm-hmm. And so, at some point... You know, what you need is, and this is hard to do, and we're getting there slowly, but what you're then expecting, if you want that fluidity of erotic interaction, and when I say erotic, it's not just sexual, right? Mm -hmm. It's with everybody and everything. What you need then is people who are self-aware, but who can also listen to their bodies. Because I think when you know how to listen to your body and the other person's body, suddenly the mind doesn't have such a large role to play. And so... I think relating to self has so much to do with somatics, which a lot of present day ideas around that tend to ignore. It's gaining popularity, but I'd I'd love to get your take on this. Like how much of a role has your relationship to your body and body awareness played in your relating to yourself? Mm -hmm. I would say it's the most important part now, (laughs) without a doubt. (laughs) 
Mm-hmm. And I want to respond to what you said about consent versus erotic flow or, you know, something like that. I think, I think there's a, a misunderstanding there, perhaps, because I agree with you that a lot of the tools and exercises around consent aren't necessarily conducive to a beautiful erotic flow. Mm. But I'm not saying that we should have a world in which we constantly exercise consent. The exercises are only there to help people to understand what they're about. What we need, I believe, in order to have a beautiful erotic aliveness and flow with people is people Mm. who are educated in their own yes. sense of self, in their own somatic practice, who understand the okay. body, who, who have healthy boundaries and have yes. a healthy way of navigating consent with themselves. Then mm-hmm. you can have the most amazing erotic flow without even uttering a word because, you know, there's, exactly. there's a trust. But for people who aren't there yet, yeah. which there are yeah. many, I think it's healthy to invite them to be more explicit about their consent practice. Right. You can't jump yes. to the next level by no, ignoring not at the all. practice. So. Not at all. And I think this interim part is really important, but I think a lot of people think that's the end right. and they stop there. Yes, yes, yes I agree. Right? Yeah. And that becomes, I think, with so much, you know, not being able to see that it's such a helpful bridge to getting into this place of very implicit awareness. And then suddenly, then life becomes really juicy. Yes, right? yes. <laughs> no, of course, I agree with you. And I, I've experienced that myself. You know, I've, I've felt that enough now to be able to say like, yes, that's where it becomes really juicy and it's wonderful. But I wouldn't have been able to hold space yes. for that 10 years ago. And I know that it would have been very helpful to have more clear boundary <laughs> practice and consent practice and, and so on. So yes. lovely, that's what lovely. I mean when I say if we bring that to yeah. the world that would improve things. It's definitely not the yes. end stage. It's, if anything, it's just the beginning. Yeah. Right? Wonderful. And yeah, just coming back to the thing about somatics, how has it been for you to discover your own body's intelligence in this realm? Mm. I would say it's an ongoing exploration, for sure. Mm. Right? So the thing that is almost impossible to understand now, looking back for me, is not how much I enjoy now exploring the wisdom of my body and whatever my body is telling me. It's more, how was it possible that in the past I was so completely disembodied? How was it possible that I grew up in an environment which basically completely disregarded the body as a source of pretty much anything, except for the Mm -hmm. most basic survival kind of like, yeah, nourish yourself. Sure, do some, you have some exercise in school, like you need to run around a bit or something, but it's really just like the last thing on anyone's mind, right? Like how you perform in maths, that's, that's important. Like physical education, nobody cares about that. So I think it's, again, it's mostly like a, a change of culture that we need, right? If, if I would have seen my parents dance and move their bodies in the living room Mm. what kind of relationship would i have with my body then that would have been very different right um so now for me what i'm what i'm trying to do is to bringing that embodiment in pretty much anything i do Mm -hmm. there's always something like a movement 
or I don't want to call it dance because dance brings up these images for many people of these yes. like organized choreographed kind of things. Yes. That's not what I'm talking about. It's more like let's call it intuitive movement or something where mm -hmm. you allow your body to move in whichever way feels good, maybe to music, maybe to inner music, it doesn't matter. And mm -hmm. I try to weave in moments like that throughout my day to, to just have that kind of relationship with my body where I constantly am reminded of like, yes, I am a body and this body needs things and oof, it's beautiful and it's juicy and it's lovely. And I, I get so much joy from that. Mm. Um, it's still challenging in the mm -hmm. sense that a lot of my life revolves around screens mm -hmm. and I haven't yet found a way of really being present to a screen while being very embodied. Yes. I try, I practice, you know, I, I, it's difficult. Yes, it's difficult. It's difficult because there's, there's screens are so ideal for, mm. for head based interactions. Right. Mm. And so that's an interesting kind of paradox that so much of our lives kind of revolves around screens now. Well, I mean, mm -hmm. by choice, I guess, also, I could choose mm -hmm. to be more present to more physical things and the mm -hmm. people around me and maybe cultivate the land and things like that. And that would be beautiful mm -hmm. in some ways, but it's also not, it's not the field of life that I'm exploring right now. So right. there's this, there's this tension there. And I feel like I have a pretty good balance, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. I think it definitely could still be improved. Nice. And I, it's really a good jumping off point here because I know that you're now stepping into the identity of a teacher. Mm -hmm. And there's this idea of enclosed cognition, right? Like what you wear informs your identity in a way. And I love that concept so much. And embodied cognition. And I'm wondering how, as you make this transition to the identity of teacher, whether it has changed the way you see yourself firstly and how you view your identity, like what the minute shifts have been. Mm. And also whether there's anything in the way that you move now that also helps you connect to this identity. Mm. <laughs> I think it's the other way around. Mm -hmm. I think those changes happen in my body first. And I think mm -hmm. I am becoming a teacher because that's the reality of how I already exist in the world or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I think, well, I mean, there's probably many reasons why my posture has changed, my body has changed, the way I move has changed. I think contributing factors, well, dance for one, like ecstatic dance is one of my most important practices. And I mm -hmm. believe that having gone through the ecstatic dance the way I relate to my body's movement is fundamentally different now mm. throughout the day. And I think that that more embodied, more playful, more dance-like interaction with my body also makes people look at me differently. And right. part of that embodiment of the teacher comes from having that beautifully grounded presence in my body. Mm. Right? I think at the same time, I've been weightlifting. I've, I've started weightlifting some, some years ago. I did that mostly for health reasons. Like mm -hmm. I've been struggling with back aches, shoulder aches, neck aches, 
pretty much throughout my life. And mm -hmm. it's incredible. Like as soon as I start my weightlifting program, those pains just disappear. I don't know how that works. As soon as I stop, <laughs> they come back. That's that's the interesting yeah. part. So, but so obviously the weightlifting also has created some changes in my body. I am more muscular than I used to be. I, I my body mm -hmm. looks better and and I feel mm -hmm. so much more there's more energy in my body. I feel more alive. There's more mm -hmm. spring to my step, things like that, right? I, yeah. I feel nicer within myself. Yeah. And I think, again, people perceive that. People see, like, not even, they don't see it. I think there's something about nervous systems being around other nervous systems yes. that are just well-functioning and grounded and embodied that makes people feel good. And I think that's part of the attraction. That's part of the reason that people have come to see me as a teacher and have come to ask mm. for my guidance mm. because they notice this joyful, grounded embodiment in me. Mm. Right? Beautiful. And I'll just, yeah, end with this question of, as you go on this journey, you know, as a teacher, how do you see yourself taking your little boy along on this journey with you in serving the world? Yeah, I think there's a, there's a really beautiful way in which the little boy feels like he's been taken to a parade or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Like there's a, there's a kind of like an incredulity in the little boy, like, oh my God, really is this possible is is this where we are now is this like this is incredible this is so nice and yeah there's really like a, a joyful exuberance about the little boy when he is able to feel safe and and surrender yes. to that experience of like yes we are a teacher now that, that's what we're doing it's yeah it's it's really nice to to feel that little boy's hand in my hand mm. and being all excited about everything that's possible now Yes. And, and, you know, just being able to do that, like take him with you, I think allows you to give so much to others because you've created that connection. Yes. And I think it's so valuable. Yes. I think it's an integral part of it. You, you cannot do it without that. Yes. Yes. And I cannot wait to see what you do. And I'm really excited for you. And yeah, thank you for this conversation, for turning the tables. I really enjoyed this. Mm, yeah, thank you, Savarcha. This was wonderful. Truly, truly nourishing. Thank you so much for your beautiful questions and the wonderfully woven narrative. I, I really enjoyed this. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, you're an interesting person, so it's kind of easy. <laughs> still, still. There's skill there yeah. as well. I see you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you too. Have a nice day. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the podcast. You can also read more of my thoughts on Twitter. I will post a link in the description. And if you are interested in improving your relationship with yourself, please subscribe to my email list at relatingtoself.com. I will then send you meditations, rituals, practices, and more of these beautiful conversations. Thanks.